The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network presents No Neutrality, where we have a roundtable of contributors pushing the antithesis in every area of life. From family to government, apologetics to homeschooling, being a wife and a mother, a husband, a father, single, widow, business owner, or employee, you will hear commentary, essays, lectures, blogs, and battle plans on how to bring forth the Christian worldview to all of life. This is a Reconstructionist Radio production. The following audio blogs can be found in written form at foundationsofreconstruction.com and have been produced into audio format by its authors. The following audio blog titled the Forgotten Reformer, The Life and Legacy of Pierre Viret, was written and recorded by Jonathan Clark on December 31, 2016. As the Church of Jesus Christ has marched forward from her Savior's cross, sustained in trials and established in triumphs, descending into the valleys and mounting the heights of her history, we all too easily forget the men whom God has providentially placed to lead his church. The sacrifices of such men for the Lord's bride are as ebbs in the advancing wave of Christ's kingdom. Thus, as the spiritual descendants of these monuments of our history, we will do well to honor their legacy. One such valiant contender for the faith, Pierre Viret, was shrouded in the smoke from the battles of the Reformation. His life doctrine, and ministry were a tremendous contribution to the church of his time and for ages to come, and hopefully as the smoke clears before the sight of the church in our time, we will recapture the biblical vision for all of life and thought as we quarry into the work of a forgotten giant of the Reformation, Pierre Viret. Viret in a Comprehensive Biblical Faith Pierre Viret is refreshing to those who embrace a comprehensive and applied biblical faith. Jean-Marc Bertou, in Pierre Viret, A Forgotten Giant of the Reformation, quotes from Viret's Christian Instruction. Quote, in the preface, Viret sets forth his central purpose with the utmost clarity. My aim in this volume has been to produce an exposition of the law of God, a law which must be regarded as the rule for every other law, through which men are to be directed and governed. Unquote. Even if Viret had never existed, this teaching would not have been a novelty. God's word proclaims its own comprehensive authority. Psalm 119, verse 96 says, I have seen a limit to all perfection, but your commandment is exceedingly broad. The Hebrew word for broad is rakab, and according to Strong's Concordance, it means roomy in any or every direction. The law of God is thus perfect, and extends, as it were, into every crack and crevice of human life and reality. We can say with Calvin in his commentary on Isaiah 8.20, quote, The prophet therefore enjoins us to ascribe to the word such high authority 
that we should venture boldly to despise the whole world if the word be opposed by them. Unquote. Then again, we need not stand against the whole world, because, looking down the corridors of time, we find the life and thought of our friend, the reformer Pierre Viret. Viret and the Cradle of Providence Viret's life began in the small town of Orb, Switzerland, in 1511. He went to college in Paris, but returned to Orb as a converted Protestant. Viret became a successful preacher in his hometown after passionate urging from William Farrell. Our friend Viret continued Reformation work in Granson, Payerne, and Geneva, 1534, where he and Farrell labored for a time. There the two met Calvin, who only meant to stay the night in Geneva. However, as the story goes, the thundering Farrell made short work of that plan, compelling Calvin to lead the new Reformed Church of Geneva. What providence brought the three together? In The Life of John Calvin, which is part of an introduction to John Calvin tracts and letters, Theodore Beza writes of the friendship these men shared. Quote, Calvin availed himself much of the aid of old Farrell and Viret, while at the same time he was also of great service to them. This friendship and intimacy was not less hateful to the wicked than delightful to all the pious, and in truth, it was a most pleasing spectacle to see and hear those three distinguished men carrying on the work of God so harmoniously and yet differing so much from each other in the nature of their gifts. Pharrell excelled in a certain sublimity of mind, so that nobody could either hear his thunders without trembling or listen to his most fervent prayers without feeling almost as it were carried up into heaven. Viret possessed such winning eloquence that his entranced audience hung upon his lips. Calvin never spoke without filling the mind of the hearer with most weighty sentiments. I have often thought that a preacher compounded of the three would have been absolutely perfect. Viret's gift of pastoral care is evident from one of Calvin's earnest letters to Farrell. Quote, Should Viret be taken away from me, I shall be utterly ruined, and this church will be past recovery. On this account, it is only reasonable that you and others pardon me if I leave no stone unturned to prevent his being carried off from me. Only let Viret remain with me. This is what I strive for with all my might. Unquote. Not long after Calvin consented to his position in Geneva, Viret went on to Lausanne, pastoring its church and founding the Lausanne Academy, 1537, where many exceptional men were trained, including Theodore Beza, Guy de Bray, author of the Belgic Confession, and Zacharias Ursinus and Caspar Olivianus, authors of the Heidelberg Catechism. Viret fought many battles with the canton of Bern, Lausanne's civil head over the proper jurisdictional boundaries of the church and state. The magistrates held on to their illegitimate power over the church, 
eventually expelling Veret and his associates in 1559, who were forced to flee for Geneva. In a way, it was then that Lausanne Academy was transplanted to Geneva. Soon after, however, Vure was forced to leave for southern France due to failing health in 1561. His ministry in this portion of the country was perhaps more fruitful than his first. In 1571, after serving for ten years in this new capacity, Vure went to be with his Savior. It is remarkable that up to that point he had survived a backstabbing from a priest, as well as a poisoning from a Catholic woman. Providences are no doubt to be noted in the life of this great man, the Angel of the Reformation. Vire proclaimed a comprehensive understanding of God's Word, a breath of fresh air from the 1500s wafting to us now in a time of serious cultural decline. Vire's life is a witness to God's providence and sovereign care. Vire's work is a witness to his proclamation of Christ's life-giving word and his desire for that renewing truth to be applied in every area of human existence. His economic, ethical, and political insight is truly valuable for our day, since the underlying battles of history are the same and because he sought to employ the Savior's sovereign sword in rightly dividing these matters. Conclusion With such a legacy passed down from Verey, how shall we as God's people best steward it? Will Christians push it back into the dusty closet of irrelevant faith? Or will we take the biblical truths taught by Verey, apply them, and teach them to the next generation? As God's people, we must not back down from the battles of our day. To do so is to become a muddied spring or a polluted fountain. Proverbs twenty-five twenty-six. To back down from any of God's word as the answer to our battles is just as equally a giving way to the evil one and becoming polluted. Seeing the model set by this great 16th century reformer, how can we as Christians engage in the battles of the 21st century? First, God's people must operate on God's ideas to have God's blessings. Reformation is impossible without the right principles undergirding efforts to make change. There must be a return to a clear, biblical epistemology where God's word is given ultimate authority over knowledge, in contrast to rationalism, where human reason and observational powers are regarded as the most reliable and authoritative source of knowledge. We must accept God's sovereign grace as the only starting point for real change and how human will and exertion can never initiate salvation. All of God's law must be embraced as the standard in all of human life and reality instead of a smorgasbord approach to God's word and the division of life into secular and sacred. We should have a dominion framework for life that accelerates the advancement of Christ's kingdom by overcoming the friction of a fallen and unharnessed world versus giving the tools of dominion over to our enemies who have no interest in Christ's kingdom. Additionally, the people of God should embrace 
historical optimism by believing God's promises about the future of this world and his victorious kingdom on earth as the gospel spreads and engulfs all the nations before his return over against a sickening, pessimistic view of history that is content with making some disciples out of the nations instead of making disciples of all the nations. Second, the family, the nucleus of society, and the powerhouse of dominion must be restored. God requires fathers to be the spiritual and physical leaders of their home. Men should establish Christian culture through the books, movies, art, teaching, food, friends, and activities they allow in their family. Mothers should be keepers at home and submissive to their own husbands, instead of enriching the large corporations and leaving their bosses with no need of spoil. Together, parents are given the responsibility of being fruitful and raising godly offspring, not sending their 2.2 arrows to be crafted by the councils of the ungodly, that is, the government schools. Children are called to honor their parents and to be teachable, respectful, and redeeming the time. They will reap in adulthood what they sowed in their childhood. Instead of worthless entertainment, Christian families need to spend their time in dominion work. Third, the Church of Jesus Christ is the pillar and ground of truth. The Church in America all too often teaches lies by its words and deeds, rather than equip the saints for the work of ministry. Modern shepherds are watching the wolves devour the sheep, and even encouraging it. Oftentimes they are wolves themselves. The halls of organized religion are not resounding with cries for repentance and return to God's law word. We ask why it is so dark and rotten in the world. The problem is there's not much light and salt coming from that which calls itself the church. Worship is blemished in its content and method. Modern youth ministry is disintegrating families. The comprehensive and applied biblical faith is not being taught. The tithe is not being given, and when it is given, it is not being used for the social financing God intended for it. Now families are sent to beg at the feet of the state for food, education, and money because all the new church programs need funding, as the halls of religion are built ever higher. In short, modern churchianity does not fear God. If it did, it would be repenting in sackcloth and ashes. Fourth, the civil institutions over society are not left untouched by true reformation. All the kings of earth must kiss the sun or be smashed like pottery. This includes the United States of America and all its states, cities, and counties. We have tried to break God's moral, economic, political, and military restraints. Our government punishes the righteous man while rewarding the wicked. This nation is in debt up to its eyeballs, funding hundreds of government programs that intrude into every aspect of our lives. The welfare state tries to enslave our people, while the warfare state tries to enslave the rest of the world. Our leaders may say we are doing just fine, and we are. We're just fine in a tailspin for destruction. 
Remember, God is not mocked. He laughs in the heavens as the nations conspire against him. After massive decentralization occurs in our land, Christians need to be ready with God's alternatives. God's law is the law of liberty. God's law lays down perfect justice for the magistrate to enforce. It is then that we will have true freedom as a society. Finally, it must be stated once again that the comprehensive application of God's word is useless apart from Christ. The cross is our example of victory. We must not think that this is going to be easy. Suffering is on the road ahead for any serious follower of Christ. There will be persecution for us as we stand on principle. But the only way to endure and rejoice through the hardships of battle is to know the captain of our salvation. Our brother Pierre Viret sits among the cloud of witnesses watching our advance for the kingdom. As we stand unconditionally on our faith, no matter how much of a minority we are, we have the power to dominate history through Christ who strengthens. Philippians 4.13 The following audio blog titled Pierre Viret, A Theology Under Fire was written and recorded by Jonathan Clark on December 31st, 2016. Viret lived in one of the most tumultuous times in the history of the church. Protestation against the religious establishment was creating friction all over Europe. Roman Catholicism was losing its foothold throughout Western Europe. In France, this was due to a faction of Protestants known as the Huguenots. Viret lived through all of this merciless persecution. Personally, he was beaten and left for dead on one occasion and poisoned by his cook on another. Nevertheless, Viret's theology was unflinching. He lived for Christ and suffered for him just the same. Here are just a few of the distinctives of Viret's theology. It was a theology which was constantly under fire and which in the end triumphed. Just war theory. Viret loved peace as all the sons of God should, Matthew 5, 9. Because of the entrance of sin into the world, war has become a necessary force, yet only as a last resort, Romans twelve eighteen. In Remonstrances Ox Fideliles, Viret states, quote, I desire it to be well considered that every war is so exceedingly dangerous and full of hazard that there is nothing of which Christians must have a greater horror than of taking up arms. I mean not solely against Christians, but against all men of the earth. There is nothing which Christians should be more wary to employ, nor which is less suited to their profession." Viret's outlook on war was generally negative. He condemned armed conflict that was founded on ambition, greed, and cupidity. Viret believed that even the Crusades of the Middle Ages were unjust battles in spite of the holy idealism that originally motivated them. Moreover, Viret frowned on those whose livelihood came from manufacturing the implements of war, particularly 
on those who produced and employed the, quote, dreadful artillery, unquote, which to Verey was an invention of diabolic origin and a jeopardy to the existence of the human race. Also detested by Verey were the people of his day who magnified religious differences between Protestants and Roman Catholics in order to create a profitable war. Due to this, one might be led to conclude that Verey never conceived of righteous warfare. On the contrary, however, Viret did believe that war is justified for two reasons, to resist invasion and to punish evil men. Biblical support for the first type of war is found in Numbers 21, 21-26, and Nehemiah 4, 14. Also, if a man may defend himself or his friend, Exodus 22, 2, Luke 22, 36, Genesis 14.11-20 Then surely a whole nation may fight for its own and its allies' safety from violence. Viret argued from the lesser to the greater to support the second kind of war. For, since a magistrate should protect one or more innocent people and chastise one or more genuine lawbreakers, could not a collection of magistrates protect a flock of righteous people and punish a pack of wicked individuals? I believe we see the second type of war in verses such as Exodus 23, 20-33, God's decree for the annihilation of the nations in Canaan by Israel, Deuteronomy 13, 12-18, a case law requiring the destruction of idolatrous, blasphemous cities in Israel, and Judges 20, Israel fighting against Benjamin for a crime unpunished in Gibeah. It is difficult to discern the principles behind these verses. One thing is clear, though. In each case, Israelites made war against a group of people who committed crime in Hebrew territory. The Canaanites were on the land God gave to Israel by sovereign decree. Genesis fifteen seventeen through 21 Exodus 23-33, Deuteronomy 6-1. The case law from Deuteronomy 13 only covers cities belonging to the Israelites, and Gibeah of Benjamin, Judges 19.14, was also in Israel. It is conceivable to conclude that this second kind of war is only acceptable for offenses committed in the land over which a group of magistrates has jurisdiction, and therefore does not extend to any group of people in the world. Many instructions for warfare are given in Deuteronomy 20. It is here that we see the principle that armed conflict is a last resort, for the Israelites were commanded to offer terms of peace before they fought with cities outside of Canaan, Deuteronomy 20.10. This principle is also exhibited in Judges 20, since the Israelites demanded for the criminals of Gibeah to be handed over by the Benjaminites for destruction. When Benjamin refused, they in essence sided with the lawbreakers. Only then, and after God's approval, did Israel resort to war. It is important to add that mortal conflict can never be justified in armed rebellion against the civil government, Romans 13.2, or in personal revenge, Leviticus 19.18. God, not man, defines the principles concerning how and when we are to engage in battle. In view of these things, war is bloody business. Ecclesiastes 3, 1 and 8 says, 
For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. God's word promises a time when his law going forth from his house will cause the peoples to beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. Micah 4, 3 and 4. The church will see this promise of peace accomplished under Christ's rule before his return. Hebrews ten twelve through 13 Not by military might, but through the faithfulness of God's people to obey and enforce his law Everywhere they go by his grace. Romans sixteen nineteen through 20 Thuray touches on this when he says, quote, For spiritual arms are not only stronger than carnal arms, without any comparison, but they are also completely invincible. Unquote. The Sovereignty of God It is striking that two great men, Calvin and Viray, were such intimate friends and fellow laborers in Christ's kingdom. In service to God, he gave each distinctive gifts and theological understanding. Calvin writes, quote, It is the will of the Lord that we shall depend wholly on his word, and that our knowledge shall be confined within its limits. And therefore, if we lend our ears to others, we take a liberty which he has forbidden, and offer to him a gross insult. Everything that is introduced by men on their own authority will be nothing less than a corruption of the word, and consequently, if we wish to obey God, we must reject all other instructors. Viret's view is clear from Jean-Marc Bertou, quoting again the preface of Christian instruction. Quote, then Viret goes on to define his purpose more precisely. Thus, God has included in this law every aspect of that moral doctrine by which men may live well. For in these laws, he has done infinitely better than the philosophers in all their books, whether they deal with ethics, economics, or politics. This law stands far above all human legislation, whether past, present, or future, and is above all laws and statutes edicted by men. It follows that Whatever good men may put forward has previously been included in this law, and whatever is contrary to it is of necessity evil. This law, if rightly understood, will furnish us with true ethics, economics, and politics. It is incomparably superior to what we find in the teachings of Aristotle, Plato, Xenophon, Cicero, and like thinkers who have taken such pains to fashion the customs of men. Unquote. In terms of the general principle that all men should submit to God's word, Calvin and Verret would agree, but Bertou states their specific difference of emphasis. Verret's position, though not explicitly theonomic, the term did not then exist, was far more consistently and thoroughly biblical than that of his Genevan colleague. For Calvin, in his application of God's law to the body politic, ambiguously hesitated in a frustrating manner between the affirmation 
of the existence of a natural law, a law of nations, nonetheless inspired, be it said, by biblical principles. In his institutes, on the one hand, and on the other, defended a more careful and precise coordination of the moral, judicial, and political implications of biblical law with regard to the penal and civil laws of the nations in his commentaries and sermons. Unquote. Moreover, in the political ideas of Pierre Viret, Robert Linder writes, quote, Viret, unlike Calvin, was ready to extend openly the authority of the Bible over the state. Viret was concerned not only for the moral, doctrinal, and spiritual implication of God's word, but also for the detailed application of the scriptures to the problems of his time and culture over which he gave the greater attention. His political thinking called the magistrates to be servants of God's law. His economic views condemned a one-way circulation of wealth into the hands of a few and the stagnation of it in useless opulence. Unquote. Although the ministry called for considerable time and effort, Viret was a prolific and erudite author, having over fifty books to his name. His greatest theological work is Christian Instruction in the Doctrine of the Law and Gospel and in True Christian Philosophy and Theology, both natural and supernatural. Of this monumental piece, Jean-Marc Bertou writes, quote, Pages 249 through 674 constitute a complete treatise on the detailed application of the Ten Commandments to every aspect of reality. It is the finest exposition of the law of God that it has been my privilege to read. The only work I know which in any way bears comparison to this masterpiece is Dr. Rushdoony's Institutes of Biblical Law. Not only do we find in Veret's Christian Instruction a detailed application of God's word to the practical problems of Christian living in every aspect of personal and social life. But this is done with an admirable sense of theological balance and the delicate relation of dogmatics to ethics, together with a constant, implicit purpose of favoring the preaching of the gospel, of extending God's kingdom, and of bringing all honor and praise to the Lord Jesus Christ." Unquote. Viret communicated the truth, not only with scholarly precision and practical application, but also with such a Christ-like sweetness, as Jean Bernard describes in Pierre Viret, Sa vie et son ouvert. Quote, His speech was so sweet that he could continually hold the attention and the interests of those who heard him, his style, which married strength to harmony, was so caressing to the ear and to the intelligence that even those of his hearers least interested in religious matters, those most impatient of other preachers, would hear him out without difficulty and even with pleasure. Unquote. Concerning the application of Scripture, Dr. Greg Bonson, in the preface to the second edition of Theonomy and Christian Ethics, writes, quote, Theonomy does not make the determination of our moral obligations or the elucidation of God's commands a cut-and-dried, easy, obvious, or simplistic task. task. It rather advocates a basic approach to ethical questions, which still requires, even if it does not always get, skilled exegesis and sensitive application. It does not automatically remove all difficulties in ethical reasoning. Unquote. 
the role of the civil magistrate. Georges Bavard, in his book, La Reformateur Pierre Viret, includes this quote from Viret, quote, Thus, just as man is composed of both body and soul, so also God has ordained that there be two types of pastors, because it is exceedingly difficult, indeed impossible, for man to attend to one thing without also looking after the other. God has limited to each one his office and calling, and has given to the one the very particular charge of souls, to the other that of the body and goods. And just as within a body there are many members, yet nevertheless but one head and heart, thus also the Christian people must not be a body in which all are members, without possessing a head and heart. That is Jesus Christ, who alone is the true head, who has raised up the evangelical pastors and civil magistrates, who must be as the eyes of all poor people, to direct and lead them under their head, Jesus Christ. Unquote. From the time that Christ redeemed a bride for himself, and the time when he shall return for her, to whom has he committed the protective stewardship of that precious bride. Of course, the king of kings ultimately defends his treasured possession, but he has particular ways through which he implements his will in the earth. Scripture teaches that the role of the magistrates is to enforce God's law, which is a great protection for Christ's church. Exodus 30, 11-16, the census tax of Israel, and Matthew seventeen twenty four through 27 are helpful verses in understanding the purpose of the civil government. The census tax, in my estimation, was for the state. According to writings by R.J. Rushton, Daniel Ritchie, and John Calvin, the civil nature of this tax is illustrated, biblically and or historically. This census or head tax was a half-shekel taken of men twenty years old and upward, not including the Levites, for the atonement of their lives. God instructed that this money must be given for the service of the tent of meeting, Exodus 30.16. Rushduni explains that the tax, being brought to the tabernacle, was not therefore ecclesiastical, since the Lord had descended making his throne in the Holy of Holies. It appears that Christ also applies the head tax to kings in Matthew 17.24-25. If this is true, then we are instructed that civil magistrates must use their resources to serve the lordship of Christ over all reality, including serving the church, as the census tax supported the tabernacle. The state accomplishes this by punishing evildoers and approving the righteous, Romans 13, 1-7. When bandits, murderers, adulterers, and other wicked lawbreakers receive God's wrath from his servant, the magistrate, and when that magistrate publicly praises righteous men, an environment is created in which the church can safely administer God's grace to the community. Thus we see the unity and diversity of these two institutions, for neither one rules in the other's affairs that belong to it alone. A church state is not being advocated here, and never should ministers of the word flee their God-given duty, regardless of whether the civil government is fulfilling its responsibility. However, both church and state biblically have the same Lord and should walk hand in hand for the advancement of God's kingdom. Calvin puts the delicate balance between these institutions like this, quote, 
We hence learn how sedulously pious magistrates ought to labor, lest the state of the church should degenerate. The king wished to have God's servants as his helpers, and this is what pious magistrates always desire, that their toils may in some measure be alleviated by the aid of the ministers of the word. For when ministers of the word only teach in a cold manner, and are not intent on reproving vices, the severity of the magistrates will be hated by the people. Unquote. Furthermore, kings are described as the foster fathers of the people of God, Isaiah 49.23, and God's people are the preserving agent of the earth, Matthew 5.13, including the magistrates therein. Paul calls them ministers of God in Romans 13.4. The Greek word for ministers, diakonos, is also applied to Christ, Romans 15.8. Paul, Ephesians 3.7, and deacons, 1 Timothy 3.8. This is reminiscent of King Melchizedek's description in Genesis 14.18 as priest of God. The office of magistrate is not a church position. However, both civil and ecclesiastical pastors parallel each other in their respective institutions. Magistrates must protect God's church by punishing criminals, but also they must submit to God's definition of a lawbreaker and the punishments they deserve. Civil leaders must rule in the fear of God, Exodus 18.21, and the fear of God is absolutely connected to keeping His commandments, Deuteronomy 6.2, Deuteronomy 17.19, Ecclesiastes 12.13, 2 Corinthians 7.1. In every civil government, someone's God and its law system will rule God's law or the law of a God invented by men. No ordinance is neutral because any law, i.e. one against thieves, is an imposition on someone, i.e. a thief. A truly neutral government is not a government at all, but rather represents anarchy. Every law imposes the designs of the true God or of man. Thus, the decision man faces is not between religion and neutrality, but rather his choice is always between inherently religious options, since all men and nations serve someone as having ultimate religious authority. Micah 4.5, Psalm 33.12 The issue for the magistrate is whether he will submit to the Lord or the imaginations of man. Joshua 24.15 These are the two competing systems for the earth. Robert Linder, in The Political Ideas of Pierre Viret, sums up the antithesis in a quote from Viret. Quote, For the devil is not able to reign or govern, except through tyranny and by tyranny. But when the law reigns and commands, it is God who reigns and governs, and not man, who is nothing except the minister of God, which is a title more honorable than the greatest kings and princes of the world are able to have. Unquote. As Moses charged the rulers of Israel that the judgment is God's, Deuteronomy 1.17, so all magistrates should be nothing less than in full submission to the Lord and his principles revealed in Scripture. Otherwise they will fail, but God's faithful servants will be blessed, Deuteronomy 28, Leviticus 26. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church, Matthew 16.18. 
and God has a special place for his civil minister to play in the keeping of that bride until his return. Thank you for listening to this episode of No Neutrality on the Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network. Don't forget to visit reconstructionistradio.com to download your favorite audiobooks and podcasts. And if you are a Christian Reconstructionist blogger and you'd like to contribute your blogs into this audio blog format, click on the volunteer link on our website, send us an email, and let us know you'd like to join the team. May Christ be glorified and His kingdom extended from sea to sea and from the rivers to the ends of the earth. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows. Or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom.